<laughs> uh, I, I absolutely want to enable bold, creative, new ways of doing things because yeah. the status quo is not getting us to where we want to be. I wish I had recorded that. It's all good. I can say it again. <laughs> all right. get into the weeds too early and then it just bogs the whole process down and then limits the time we can spend to my point earlier being more visionary being more yeah. proactive yeah. seeing what's coming down the horizon but if all we're dealing is dealing with the day-to-day week-to-week and what's right in front of us by definition we can't be proactive and and so i think that's what i mean by the less is more Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is the Sharing Boulder podcast. My name is Philip Ogren, and for our 10th episode, I sat down with Matt Benjamin in my backyard. Matt is considering a run for city council this fall. We covered many subjects in our marathon conversation, including ranked choice voting, parking minimums, zoning, the role of city council, the city budget, effective governance, a living wage for city council, among many others. Matt knows a lot about how the city of Boulder works, and he was eager to get in the weeds on just about any subject, and he taught me quite a lot along the way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Matt Benjamin. Matt, thank you for being on the show. Um, uh, please go ahead and inter- introduce yourself. Uh, well, Philip, this is a, a pleasure to be a part of this and to share a conversation about our community, and uh, I think the, the title of what you've put together here is emblematic of, of my values is, is, is sharing, is, is how do we make a more inclusive and welcoming community. So I think uh, this is, you're on the right track and, and, I, and I'm glad to see this conversation pick up and, and hopefully we can bring more into it. Great. Um, so yeah, I, I've lived in Boulder now for 21 years and I'm a father of two young kids, a husband, uh, and I spent, you know, like, like some people are actually, it's, it's actually a pretty common story. Boulder has this just mystique about it. It has, uh, and, and it'll make sense why I use some of these cosmic terms in a minute, uh, but it has gravity. It, 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 it holds on to things that get in its orbit. And I was one of those. And I never left. I came to school. My background uh, studying at the university was in astronomy and astrophysics. And then immediately got into uh, helping run the planetarium on campus, where I got to bridge some of my early passions, which was working directly with with world-class researchers, as well as education and public outreach, and truly trying to help with science literacy. So that's that's sort of my background here. And then um, did that for a little over a decade, and in, in doing so, built a lot of my you know grew some of my values that are based on community and education, um, certainly about empathy and understanding where people come from and how they come to understand the world. Because when you're teaching science, you have to be empathetic to those different perspectives in order to really reach them on complex subjects. And um, so, so that's really what, what started. I met my wife about 12 years ago playing recreational volleyball in North Boulder. Uh, we were on opposing teams to start, which I found kind of interesting. Yeah. And uh, eat it. Right? Oh, no, oh, there was a moment I blocked one of her shots, and she is a, a great volleyball player and very competitive. And I remember her demanding that her team feed her the ball so that she could spike it on me. And I, and yeah. I think that and nice. and I and true, I true love. You know, oh yeah, right? and I think she got one on me, yeah. uh, which which I think 
really was like, and then she had that sportsmanship of gotcha nice. kind of thing. And I think at that point I was like, all right, you're, you're, you're my kind of person that's not going to shy away from a challenge. That's cool. And, and so, yeah, we, uh, um, we, we've been together ever since and married for going on uh, seven years now. And uh, my son Mason is six. My daughter Avalyn is three. Wow. And, um, yeah, so we are a young working family. Both of us work. And, you know, my daughter has spent half of her life in quarantine. So that is a very informative uh, and an interesting perspective to gain as a parent, uh, but also to think about ramifications on children. Yeah, um, and sure. my son Mason's about to start kindergarten. And after <clears throat> a year of kind of quarantine, it's how do you reintegrate in socialization? I feel I need to go to summer camp too <laughs> to kind of <laughs> reintegrate into how to be socially uh, adept and, and, and skilled after, you know, 18 months away from that and being Definitely. virtual. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, and, and then... Um, you know, so that's a little bit of background. And then what really sort of got me to where I am now um, is sort of a really, I'd say three things specifically jumped out. First is, um, you know, interestingly enough, because we're going to, you know, we'll talk a little bit or the subject matter of the, of the week is the um, CU South draft annexation agreement. Mm -hmm. Well, two weeks after the flood in 2013, uh, my dad and brother died in a plane crash. Ouch. And, you know, there, there is a, an assortment of, uh, of trauma that anybody or any group of people can go through. And one or the other isn't worse in any way. Everyone has to go, you know, goes through that in their own right. But for me, it was, you know, losing the two people I was closest to and really trying to figure out what does that mean for my life. And, and really, as you come out of the dark, you know, somewhat of that deep grief, you really have this choice in life of you, you let the grief consume you. And, and that leads to a lot of dark things, uh, perhaps addiction or, or, or poor mental health. A lot of really bad things can lead it by letting that grief take over. The other option I had was finding a way to be bigger and, and better and <clears throat> embody a lesson my dad gave me, which was, and it was, and it was in all things, whether it was at a campsite or wherever it was, it was leave it better than you found it. Yeah. And it just seemed to be this constant theme in everything that that sort of fatherly advice embodied. And, uh, you, know, after, you know, after going to my dad's service and, and my dad and brother's service, I saw what he had done. And I saw that, you know, at 63... Because people came together and testified to what, what his, his life and what he did. You're right. That's cool. And, you know, it's kind of weird because I think we all, when you're kids, you don't really know your parents outside of being your parents. Yeah. I mean, you know yeah. what they do, but you really don't know. For sure. And a lot of times, maybe, you know, it was a generational thing that there was a little separation of church and state if they didn't want that work life to invade the yeah, home life. Yeah. So I didn't know. I mean, I was 31 at the time when, when they passed away. And I didn't really know. Yeah. And it was, to your point, at this service, 1,100 people oh my at, at that memorial. And I was hearing from people from all over California and yeah. even across the country of the impacts he had had in in. in bringing about change. What and was his career? Uh, he, he ran a construction business okay. in Los Angeles. Yeah. And it wasn't just, well, you built this thing. It was all his work with nonprofits and his oh, philanthropy. Yeah. Yeah. And it just left this mark of, I have to piece together my life on the back yeah. of this. And my brother was 28 when he died and barely got a chance to impact his community. My dad at 63 had so much more to give and already had such an impact. And I thought, I don't know you realize how futile life can be, right? So you realize it's right in front of you. It could be next week, next year, what have you. And I'm like, you know what? I need to lean all into being a steward of my community. 
And that was really that core decision at that moment was what do I need to do to better my community to make it better off than I found it when I arrived here in the year 2000. And that was the building block for starting for myself to get engaged in local nonprofits that, that were focused on childhood, concert, uh, childhood education and conservation and good governance. And, and then it was in 2017, it was like, I'm going to run for city council and, and I'm going to go all in. I, I want to just dive deep into this because I care about it and I want to make impact. And that was 2017. And then I just stayed really involved in local politics, served on uh, work, campaign finance and election reform working group and then was fortunate enough to be asked to lead the coalition, which supports a number of candidates in 2019. Yeah. And then last year um, created and then ran the campaign for Our Mayor, Our Choice, which- Congratulations. Um, thanks, yeah. yeah, which was a chance for bolder voters to elect their mayor using ranked choice voting. And so all of those things have kind of led me to this opportunity to run for council through experience, lived experience, and really being in a position to listen to our community. Can and, we digress yeah. for just a moment? So uh, have you had any second thoughts about our mayor, our choice, after watching what happened in New York uh, and all the, all the news around that? Or You don't know, no, because what's interesting is the issues that happened in New York were emblematic of just human error. Yeah. Not anything fundamentally wrong with the system or process of ranked choice voting. Yeah. And in many ways, it really just showed that, that in spite of the human error, the system still worked as yeah, it was totally. intended. And so to me, it was in many ways a validation. I think there might be, you know, we're dealing with some of this post-truth society as a whole. <laughs> so there's a whole swing of ways yeah. one can swing different instances. But I thought it was a great validation of the system on such an immensely large scale. Yeah. I think it passed the stress test. It did what it was intended to do. It, and, and then what's the update for that in Boulder? We're going to have yeah. it in 2023? That's correct. That's, okay. Well, what we had to do is, well, so there's this kind of chicken and the egg that kind of got going. And the, and it's sort of emblematic to Boulder. Boulder is a change maker. Boulder, when we set our sights to do something, we tend to impact the state. Yeah. And uh, voters passing that resoundingly with nearly 80% of, uh, of approval really led the state to have to kind of urgently adopt some new state standards for the Secretary of State's office to provide guidance and resources to effectively implement a ranked choice voting election um, here in, in the city of Boulder. And so had we not passed that, the st that, that state legislation would have died on the vine. But because we passed it, it created the urgency and it got a lot of people involved. I, I helped um, play a little bit of a role in shaping some of that legislation to make sure it fit Boulder's needs. But, uh, and the governor just signed it a few weeks ago um, into law. And now this wonderful synergy is created between cool. the state and the county and the city. And we're ready to go. But more importantly, our actions have now opened the door for people all are, these people communities. People are watching, paying attention, uh, yep. thinking about it now. Exactly. They're going to see how it goes. And not know. just thinking about it. It's yeah. now going to be on the ballot in Broomfield, <laughs> right? Oh, cool. voting. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost going to likely get on the ballot in Fort Collins. The city of Denver is, is likely to get it on the ballot here soon. So... Look what Boulder did. We, we created this spark and now, boom, all these little pockets of, of reforming our democracy have sprung up and, and we helped lead that. And I think that's a really emblematic but, but important thing to reflect on how Boulder's been a change maker for a number of years. So before we leave that subject, is there, is there more to do with, with respect to how we vote? Like, uh, I, I, I feel like I heard recently that 
um, we could have ranked choice for all of city council. Mm -hmm. And that, that's not happening in 2023. No, or, no, we yeah. would have to pass a separate yeah. uh, okay. law um, and change our charter to how we uh, uh, elect council. And, and I will be strongly advocating for that, okay. not just during this yeah. campaign. If I'm fortunate enough to be on council, I, I would like us to actually really uh, aggressively <clears throat> pursue election reform for council. Um, there, are, there are a lot of issues with how we elect council and some of the byproducts of our system that I think a lot of people in the community have started to sense are unhealthy or, or perhaps adding to some of the toxicity and polarization in our community. Um, so, so we can't quite do that. In terms of what's left for us, the biggest thing we'll need to do is work with our county clerk, Molly Fitzpatrick, and our, and our city clerk's office and, and to really do a proper education campaign in terms yeah. of really making sure the voters really understand what to do, how to fill out their ballot, and, and to make sure that they really understand how to do it. Because when you look at the exit polls from a lot of communities that do ranked choice voting, with a proper education up front, you get like 80 to 85% of the voters say, that was better than what we were yeah, previously that was, doing. That was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and you want that. Yeah. But if you don't do the proper education, you can sort of taint the well and it makes it harder to be successful down the road. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, I kind of derailed you from your intro. You were no, it's uh, all good. You were doing three things that had led you to yeah, and I sort of mentioned the the ones was clearly being that that you know the tragedy and yeah. that self reflection that comes from wanting to then be a steward of, of my community and yeah. the environment, and uh, number two was um, the election of Donald Trump. I, I, you know, being in your mid thirties and seeing you know that older generation in many ways fumble the football more yeah. or less on critical issues and just show a general disrespect for future generations to me was like, well, that's, that's my generation. And, and we're just now entering a position of having the experience both in work and life, having um, perhaps the money and the time to get involved in local politics and actually start making those changes and, and, and take back the reins of what our community and our country should be. And that was a big galvanizing force. And, and the third one was, was, was having children. Uh, you know, having kids is, changes you. It changes and you. <laughs> as much as I want to think that I was fairly, I was thinking beyond myself without kids, uh, no. Once you have kids, it, 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 it indoctrinated me anyway to be purely focused about future generations and being less concerned about my own or myself for that matter. And all three of those things really sort of molded together to really say like, yeah, now's the time, but more importantly, this is the community that I want to fight for. And I want to make sure that um, future generations have the same or better opportunities than I did in this community. Well, I really admire that because I, I think that sometimes when you have kids, you actually focus more on yourself and get sort of more defensive and like carving out your sure. area of, of, uh, of protection or of safety and, and um, your um, interest. I mean, cause, cause running for city council, there's some kind of uh, amount of exposure that, that that gives you that, um, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's a security risk or whatever, but, um, but just, you know, it's like, it's, it's to, to have an externally facing response to having kids, I think is really admirable. I, I just admire that. So. Appreciate that. Yeah. There's no doubt you, you're protective of the kids, certainly <laughs> yeah, no, coming of, out of COVID. Of course, hundred yeah. um, percent. But yeah, no, I it, yeah, I, I I appreciate you saying that, and it's it's um, it's about it's about the kids, and I think you know one sort of personal experience that kind of connects me to things like housing and transportation and general affordability in our community is 
you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, my wife and I met 12 years ago playing rec, uh, recreational indoor volleyball. There was a group of about 10 of us that had spouses, soon to be spouses, or already had young kids. And so effectively 10 family units from that group in volleyball. Today, only two left in this town. They all, they all moved all out of state or um, just surrounding? The affordability yeah. pushed them out of this town. Yeah. And I talked to them today and they're like, I, I would love to live in Boulder. Yeah. Sure. And affordability pushed them out. They were yeah. fine maybe as a couple in a townhome or, or a small house or whatever, but as soon as they wanted to have kids, they couldn't expand. And, it's, and, and the crazy part is they make really good money. Yeah. And still the barrier to entry in our community and they couldn't evolve in our community. And I, and I, it bums me out uh, in a serious way because I know they're not the only ones and I see us really losing our young working class families, which in many ways are the injection of that vitality that communities like this depend on long-term. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's go ahead and pivot towards housing yeah. and, um, and lean into that. So uh, maybe just give us a positive vision of, of what you would like to see uh, housing to look like in Boulder. Like what kind of policy changes would you make? Or maybe um, if that's too specific, uh, just kind of generally speaking, what's going on with housing in Boulder? And what, would, what do you want to change? Well, I, I can't really paint a, a rosy picture of, of our current <laughs> There's housing. a lot of nice houses. Let's put, you there know, are. You could, you could start uh, there. <laughs> there are a lot of nice houses. And in many ways, you know, uh, a lot of the houses here match the, the surrounding beauty of, of this community in Boulder. And maybe that's by design or just what happens when you live in a beautiful place that, that what you build in many ways uh, feeds on that. Um, but our housing situation is not in a, in a great place. It's, it's okay, and, but it's not great. And I think a good example is the recent community survey that said, I think it was like 73 or 75% of those surveyed said, affordability in housing is an urgent need. Well, that's up like, I think, 20% from when the, a, sur a comparable survey was done just like six or seven years ago. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, if our policies were making the proper changes, you'd see the urgency go down because yep. we were actually solving the problems. But to see this urgency continue to rise tells us we're just not meeting the needs um, of those that wish to live, work, and play in this community. And... And so I, I think it's just worth having a very general status uh, and reality check that it's not just affordable housing in its perhaps formal definition, it's general affordability in this community is, is continuing to become more and more exclusive and pushing people out that we in our community depend on for the, for the vitality of our community. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that disconnect is what we have to try to overcome in a lot of ways. And so where, what does that lead to? Well, certainly there's the, your, your sort of more formal affordable housing. There's middle income housing. And then there's largely, you know, what, what do you do with, with the rapid appreciation of single family homes in this community? Because, you know, there's plenty of single family homes all over the place that you'd want families to be able to move to because they're near schools or they're in 15 minute neighborhoods. And I can just speak to my area of South Boulder. You know, I, I've seen... I've been there now about 13 years in South Boulder, thereabouts. Yeah, about 13 years in South Boulder. And I've seen a lot of homes go up for sale and a lot of families move in. If there are families, they tend to be older families, families where their kids are in middle or high school. But really young working families, I just don't see it. And that worries me about our elementary schools west of Broadway. And then that canary in the coal mine is 
how BDSD is navigating reduced enrollment west of Broadway and seemingly can't build schools fast enough on the east side of the county. Yeah. And you kind of go, there's this disconnect. And so to me, I, I, there's a lot of signals and warning signs saying we're not doing enough. And um, it, it, it concerns me because that vitality that I want to see making this community better than I found it is not going in that proper direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then what are some policy changes you'd like to It's a great question. you'd like to make? I think one of the most important things is we just have to be more expeditious in how and where we decide to put truly affordable housing or uh, mixed income and mixed use housing. You know, and I got to give council some credit. That recent conversation with um, uh, the Diagonal Plaza, they met that urgency. They could have taken the slow, long route of doing a land use change and rezoning the whole thing. They could have gone that route, which which would have delayed that years or derailed the project as a whole. They went for the, the path of least resistance. And so I want to give credit where credit's due that we're starting to maybe see a, a shift on some of this affordable housing, the Waterview project out on Arapahoe. Yep. That got unanimous support. And I go, okay, like let's build on There's these successes. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a little bit of hope that we're maybe starting to understand that we got to pick up the pace. Can you uh, give the listeners just a quick, you know, uh, thumbnail sketch of what happened at the Diagonal Plaza? Right. So at Diagonal Plaza, this is this is the area where the old Sports Authority was. Uh, there's a current Walgreens, I believe. This is where you, uh, the local DMV is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for lack of better words, it's 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 a it's a, just a derelict part of that com- of that area of just this massive parking lot, empty buildings. It has really no vitality on the northern and western edge. And is it, uh, I'm sorry, is it west of Foothills or is it east of Foothills? It's, oh. Because I thought that the, the area that was under question was actually east of Foothills, but I might be mistaken. I guess I, uh, I, I the, have to look at the map. No, it's across the street from Safeway at like 28th oh, and Iris. Nice, okay. Um, I, I, uh, it's funny that I've been following this yeah, yeah. And, had, and my mental map was, was wrong. Okay. Yeah, uh, so... Um, Anyway, this has been an area for well over a decade that has been identified as a place that needs drastic revitalization. Yeah. But because of the complexity of having, I think, over a dozen different actual property owners within this construct of area, made it really difficult to try to get any general consensus on how to move things and land use, I mean, and zoning. Yeah, the zoning was, needs to be changed, is that right? very difficult, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The zoning needs to be changed. It's just been very complex. And finally, through a, a developer and partner with Boulder Housing Partners and really generally the will of the community um, and some conversations with the neighborhoods and stuff, there's a plan to revitalize that with, some, with a lot of uh, some, some market and affordable and some, some uh, uh, other types of housing in there, which would drastically improve that area. And where some of that affordable housing really connects well with the properties that Boulder Housing Property, Boulder Housing Partners already has. Yep. So there's a lot of synergy there That's that great. really helps to build a community that doesn't make it sort of disjointed and blocky from different partners. And and having the grocery store nearby and a number of restaurants and improved retail, it's just, it's exactly the kind of project we need now. And what was going to hang it up was there was really two forks in the road. It was do a whole new land use designation and then rezone the whole thing, which would then require input from all the property owners Mm -hmm. or just provide a special designation for this particular wedge of property to to give them just a different way of calculating the open space 
requirement um, for that set of properties. And then they could go ahead and you wouldn't have to include and or deal with the uncertainty of including all the property owners. Council chose the, chose the path of least resistance. They said, we're gonna give you the special designation. Uh, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, I, I would bet house money that council would have chosen the long, slow process for Del that. Delay it as, exactly as, right. as a nice side effect. You exactly know? right. Yeah. And that's where I want to say where credit is credit due to the current council for, for understanding the urgency and, and moving swiftly for the path of least resistance. Do we say rah, rah, we've done it? No. I think what it does is it shows an example of how we can move forward and be more... Um, like I said, expeditious in where we think of bringing a more affordable affordability to our community um, sooner rather than later, um, because we're running out of time in order to bring that affordability into our community before we reach this sort of point of no return where everyone's priced out and we become sort of an aged old retirement community and, and the clock's ticking. And, and so I think we have to work even harder to overcome some of those natural forces on a community like ours. So um, I, one little bit of concern in the way you sort of set this up at the beginning was um, affordability for families that are expanding. Yeah. Um, but I would say that there's a lot of affordability issues at, at every level, right? There is. Like uh, people living by themselves or living with roommates or um, elderly uh, people. Um, and uh, so like, because to, to me, my, my reaction to like worrying about expanding families is like well the you know in terms of affordability for single-family homes that ship has probably sailed and I, I mean like I like when I think about increasing affordability it's sort of more like let's let's focus on uh, townhomes and condos and and denser housing so is that um, or you're, you're, you're hopeful that we'll have more affordable single-family homes or well I, I mean it's it's not that to have that single families need single family homes. Yeah. I, I don't that I don't pair them together. Okay. Um, and so you know, and if I if I miss maybe I perhaps maybe misconstrued in my communicating that it's more of we have a demographic that is being pushed out of our community, yeah. and and by the nature of just middle income housing as a whole, it's far more complex, and there are far fewer tools in our tool set in the city and in the community to bring about that type of efficacy, right? Real affordable, true affordable housing, you've got state and federal subsidies, you can leverage dollars that are raised through cash and loot. I mean, it, you can do so much more with so little money for that type of affordability than you can for middle income families. Because the, the mechanisms- the missing middle. Yeah, yeah, they're just, the mechanisms aren't quite there. And so to your point, yeah, what are, what are those things? Well, clearly you could be looking at where you have single family zoning and I would start with areas that are near transit corridors to think about, well, can you on certain types of parcels start to divvy them up to do duplexes and quadplexes? I don't think we need to move to a citywide, you know, all zoning. I don't like blanket one size fits all solutions, but I think we need to start looking at where we can start doing that and, and start to build that into our repertoire of what our housing policy is. Because you're right, single family homes left as is aren't going to become more affordable. Yeah. I mean, that's just, yeah. just not going to happen. So what can we do to leverage the property and the space that exists in those single family zones to create pockets at the very early onset where we can encourage affordability 
um, by effectively amortizing out through people and building the inherent property cost and 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 cost of the property itself in this community. What's what's your um, what's your hesitancy towards um, you know like changing lots of zoning? I mean, like to me, I would like to see lots of single-family home zoned areas mm -hmm. get liberalized um, rather than just here at the margins or in a few spots. So yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. That. I think maybe you know perhaps that's the end goal, and and maybe this is just seeing how some of these battles have played out in our community sure. that i i think a blanket policy like that if that was sort of the initial thing to come out with would be met <laughs> with an unfathomable amount of resistance yeah, yeah. that would then unfortunately scuttle the concept in its entirety yeah and much like we've seen with adus and also co-ops the fact that it was done in a smaller sense right off the bat with some guardrails attached to it in many ways allowed us to dispel those misconceptions yeah. right you, you remember the co-op arguments and 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 the ADOs. to be trash everywhere to be noisy parties in every street to be too many cars none of those re none of those none of that fear-mongering came to fruition and now we can have a conversation of expanding those programs because we now have the actual data and the case study to say yeah, those, that, that fear-mongering is, is not a real thing. We can actually get to actually pragmatic policy. And I think with regards to modifying single-family zoning, that type of uh, uh, process and, and strategy, I think in the long term will benefit us versus the risk of having the whole concept scuttled because we may be shot a little too hard on the initial salvo. Sure. We, uh, we had Dave Ensign yeah. on for our, our second episode, our second interview. And uh, <clears throat> he kind of stepped through like some of his efforts to change yep. zoning, and just you know, kind of like you were, um, we're talking about if, if just some modest proposals for certain kinds of zoned areas. And uh, I mean, if modest proposals are going to get that kind of rejection, a, a blanket-wide yeah. city thing. But 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 my pushback though is 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 feeling this sense of urgency from you know where I. You know, like, do we believe we're in a climate crisis? And do we believe our land use has anything to do with that? Um, you know, when you start thinking yes about... Yes and yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you think about, like, you know, a prospective home buyer um, kind of weighs their options and are they going to buy something a bit bigger and nicer out on the exurbs where they're just, you know, uh, basically guaranteeing that they have to have a car at their disposal for everything that they do? Or are we going to, as a society, make room for people near city centers and, you know, 15-minute neighborhoods and this yeah. sort of thing? So I guess my pushback to that is, like, when, when, when do we acknowledge that there's a crisis and that land use has something to do with that? It's a great question. <clears throat> I think we acknowledge it now. We should have acknowledged it 10 years ago. And I think one of the core things that I'm going to focus on in my campaign is that we have to stop being reactive in the policies that we pursue. Yeah. Outside of perhaps COVID and the flood, everything we're dealing with, we've seen coming. Yeah, it's just marching towards us. It, and, it, none yeah. of that stuff's a surprise. Yeah. And yet we are, we are using reactive policy to address these things that we've seen coming. And I, and I think that from a philosophical but a, a, but a process perspective at the city, I want to advocate that we start to look over the horizon and, and, and council, I think, needs to shift how it operates 
from being this sort of managerial body to kind of like, and I give Ed Byrne credit, he said this is the raucous caucus of, you know, we should be more of a board of, uh, than, than a managing uh, uh, group. And I think if we're more of like a board of directors for a nonprofit, we can be a little more strategic and visionary and really help guide on those longer term trajectories that will then allow us to have greater sets of tools at our disposal to deal with problems before they just show up and hit us in the face. And so to your question, to your issue about urgency, it's urgent. And so we have to kind of do both right now. We have to kind of pick up the pieces because it's falling apart in front of us. Yeah. But also making sure that we're not so... <laughs> we need to bring people along with us. Right, but right, we also yeah. have to make sure that the solutions we do are also preparing us for those future changes that we also see coming. And that makes it a little disjointed in that process, but that doesn't mean we can't kind of be currently addressing while also being forward thinking. Yeah. Um, and that's where you start to think about, you know, where you mix housing and transportation together, where we should be reducing parking minimums, minimums or eliminating them entirely in many of these larger developments because if they're along transit corridors there's no need for for cars that's right and if we're building these 15 minute neighborhoods we're effectively eliminating the need for a car and also we're not building the space for parking we're providing more space for housing that's right so so there's a well, lot, there's just you know, that inherent cost that of each parking spot is is a lot of money totally right? so i mean if you want affordability one of the things one of the things you can do is make it less expensive to build housing exactly right? and, and that and you know and, and as much as this community will some and folks some some people will, will, will demonize developers at the end of the day they, they have they, their math has to work yeah uh, they don't work for free they certainly don't work for for losing money yeah, well, they don't build too much stuff after yeah. after a loss. <laughs> so when we have these parking minimums, we're 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 forcing them to create market rate that's exceptionally high market rate to yeah. subsidize the very parking spaces and the affordability we're requiring of them. Yeah. So so our policies are exacerbating the very problem that we've identified. So so there's you know uh, you know there's this disconnect and a lack of consistency in what we state as our values and the policies we enact and and a th and i see you know thematically in my campaign i'm going to be focusing on are we investing in our values are, are we being consistent and yeah. and i think that's a, a big open question that i don't think we're passing the test on um but but it's important for us to really consider how we're being true to our values and where we actually provide the policy well, this, um, that was a nice segue into something I wanted to circle back on, which is you made this a, a, a nice case for what the role of city council should be. And as I've, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is to educate myself. I hope, I hope I'm bringing some listeners along with me. And, and, um, but as I've sort of started to understand what city council is about, um, I, I feel like they're, you know, we have this Boulder Valley Comprehensive Plan that has this, this list of core values that are very, like, progressive and actionable. And they're like, all right on. It's like, we should do all these things. And I, I just sort of feel like city council gets in the way of, of letting this, the, the city staff implement those values. And um, I agree with you completely. Yeah. I, I think this is, there is a systemic issue of micromanagement and, and being an armchair expert yeah. with council. And that's why I say it's just like a board on a nonprofit. I serve on a few of those boards and you gotta let the experts that you hire, you gotta enable them to carry out the strategic vision that you as a board have set. Yeah. And I think, and, and we have the Tipton report from 2019 that came out 
that, that effectively just laid the case for why we are seeing some of this dysfunction is what we, what we have. Yeah. We just ha we have created such a toxic atmosphere with regards to empowering our staff to carry out those values that when they do carry out that strategic mission and then some folks in the community have outcry against it, city council throws their hands up and throws staff under the bus. I mean, we've had an exodus of very qualified and capable staff in an array of departments. And, you know, if Boulder's gonna tackle these complex challenges, we need the best people. We clearly have the best community. So we should have the best working environment to match that in order to attract the top talent. And we should be enabling and, and empowering staff to do that work. And, and, and council should take a few steps back. I, I've, you know, I said this when I ran in 2017, and I've only further been galvanized in, in my belief that council does too much. And one thing I learned in, in time working not just and, with... And yeah. Intervening to slow things down, yeah. perhaps? Is that kind of like, yeah. broadly speaking, what it they is. do too much of? It is do too much, but also, you know, another way to say it is less is more. Yeah. And I learned this in my time working with, you know, a lot of the research faculty at the university and on a couple NASA projects I was fortunate to be a part of. You know, you, you build a spacecraft, you can't put every instrument on board, but what you can do is put a few that are fantastic yeah. and are great. And, and, and that's what NASA kind of does. And, and, and I'm not saying I need to be like that, but that was where I really understood that like less is more. And more importantly, that if you try to do too much, all the things you're trying to do get done in mediocrity. And there's a lot of being done that's being done in, to some extent mediocrity and not by design, but by just, it just isn't well, the capacity just, just, to I do wanna, things great. I want to clarify because like, I feel like, you know, generally speaking, the city isn't doing enough to enact these core values. So I, I want the city to do more, but maybe what you're saying, I'm not trying to put words in your yeah. mouth, but, but the, if, the, if the city council could get out of the way and let, let them do more, or are you actually really saying that the city should kind of like focus on a few key things? Just, well, I mean, maybe it's a good differentiator. If council steps back, that doesn't mean the city slows down. Yeah, yeah. I th and I think that's an important piece here is step away and provide a little bit of space for the staff to take care of the, yeah. the vision and the priorities that council's made and let the council say, look, we're not gonna get into the minutia of a lot of this daily or weekly stuff. We're going to let staff settle that. And if stuff has to rise up for some critical needs, we'll address it. But more importantly, we're going to trust that staff gets it. And when we get to something that's almost fully cooked, hey, check in with us. And yeah. we'll, we'll help tweak around the edges and make sure we're on point. All right, good. Let's go sign off, move on. Yeah. But, but we get into the weeds too early, and then it just bogs the whole process down and then limits the time we can spend, to my point earlier, being more visionary, being yeah. more proactive, yeah. seeing what's coming down the horizon. But if all we're dealing is dealing with the day-to-day, week-to-week, and what's right in front of us, by definition, we can't be proactive. And, and so I think that's what I mean by the less is more. Council needs itself to be in a less is more state so that it can start to really think about what's coming and, and really start to put our, our values in, in, in conjunction with our policies. So let's circle back just a little bit further. Yeah. You, were gonna, you were going to uh, tell us what policies related to housing uh, you'd like to Yeah, so see, I started talking about in terms of uh, giving credit to council yep. and you know, so I think what that, let, let more of that, right? I think that, that let's, let's speed that up. Let's find the paths of least resistance and let's really start to look at where those places we need it and, and drive staff to say, look, without cutting corners and being risky, 
let's start to really drive some more of this conversation of bringing up some more housing in these environments, in these areas. I think, you know, the Alpine balsam needs to come right back into a very important conversation. I mean, there's only so many places to do infill in a strong manner in 15 minute neighborhoods. So yeah. it's not this blanket development across the city. We know exactly where we are and it's these tiny pockets and we've got to nail those and get them done sooner rather than later. And I think we just have to press staff on the urgency of that. So that, that's more of just getting the job done and doing some of what recently we've seen doing that's working. And I want to say, yeah, more of that. Just just hit the gas pedal, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think we can be in a good shape. You know, specific some, on some of the policies, I, I think, you know, one of the things that jumps out to me with regards to the affordable housing stuff is we th need to think about somehow recalibrating our cash in lieu program. That to me is really this, this conundrum, I think, for the city. Because one of the values I have is that mixed affordability and mixed socioeconomic diversity is really healthy for not just our community as a whole, but even smaller neighborhoods and enclaves within Boulder. But the way we've set up the system is we've set it up so that developers can opt out of creating inclusionary housing by giving the city money to then build it somewhere else. And so we're actually creating segregated communities as a result. So we want inclusivity, but we give them an out to create segregation, but then it gives them city money to then go ahead and build affordability. And so it's like we're, it, it is, and so I get why we need that money, but I, I think we need to have a larger conversation in our community about why are we allowing developers to opt out? Yes, it funds a lot of affordability, which our city needs, but it does so at the cost of inclusion. Yeah, at, at the places. At the where, places yeah. we want it. And there aren't that many places left. So it's important that we really make sure those areas are inclusive. But we've got a process that allows that to not happen. And, and, and so I, I really think that needs to be more seriously looked at. Because all we've sort of looked at is the dollars and cents of cash and lieu. And trying to find that calibration point of, well, we don't want, don't want too many opt-outs, but we won't, don't want too few. And so we just set this price point that's like 50-50. I'm like, no, I think we have to have a deeper values discussion about what are we actually trying to achieve um, because we've created this inherent conflict of interest with the city as a result. And, and I, I struggle with how we continue forward with that and then generate the outcomes that we've claimed to value with inclusion and diversity. So that, that, that's, a, that's a piece. I don't have a solution, but I think we need to unleash our staff and some creative minds on how we find a way around that sort of contradiction in values. Well, since we're kind of in this, uh, you know, in this orbit of um, inclusionary housing in, in the places where you might, uh, it might otherwise get excluded in cash of lieu, uh, lieu of cash, how is it? Cash in lieu. Cash in lieu, yeah, yeah. sorry. Cash in lieu of um, the building. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, David Adamson uh, is working really hard to try to get projects where you have gentle infill. Yep and kind of, you know, basically market rate affordable housing, yeah. right? So uh, micro condos or co-housing situations. Mm -hmm. And um, what's, your, what's your feeling about uh, those kinds of projects? So I've had a lot of conversation with, with David over the years, and he's been a tremendous sort of community advocate for the non-status quo way of thinking about affordability. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that he, he advocates for and I support is community land trusts. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, what we have is not a, it's not, 
the buildings aren't becoming unaffordable. Yeah. The land we're yeah. on. And so if we can have mechanisms to decouple brick and mortar from the rapid appreciation from the land, we can actually maintain affordability without things like deed restrictions and other things that then limit, you know, and, and that's, you know, deed restriction sort of a separate beast. We've leaned really heavy on deed restriction for its, you know, the comfort of permanent affordability. Yep. But that permanent affordability comes at the literal cost of people being able to move up the economic ladder in our community. Yeah. And I think deed restriction is a tool, but I think it's been over-prescribed in our community when we're not leveraging some of these other tools like community land trusts. And I think whether it be through nonprofit or the city as a whole, buying the land and decoupling that brick and mortar from the land itself, I think these are great tools in our toolkit um, to provide some greater affordability opportunities. Um, the, the other, the, and the other piece aside from that community land trust and, and that sort of gentle infill really has to do with where we can really attack with some very specific zoning changes, especially along our transit arteries. And I think when we've got, you know, low density residential along transit arteries, to me, that's not the most effective use of that land and zoning as a function of one, creating affordability two trying to keep some cars off the road, and, and really three, making sure that we're actually meeting our goals of inclusion and diversity in our community. And so I, I think those are all, th those three things right off the bat are ones I'd like to see explored aside from the, hey, whatever, we're, you know, what we're doing at Diagonal Plaza and, and Waterview, more of that. Um, I, I think those three things are, are really helpful tools to so, get us moving. So this is just a question. I, don't, I realize I don't, I don't know what the setup is. So the city bought the alpine balsam property yeah so are they considering um a community land trust model for that that area or is that not that i'm aware of so it'll all just get sold um either I, at looks, either at yeah. market or at deed restricted affordability from what i can tell i think that's where yeah. where it's headed I, I, you know i could there's certainly some of that nuance and i think it's you know the original plan has been sort of scrapped so it's kind of been back to and there goes the lawnmower there goes the um, lawnmower um all right so uh uh, is there anything else to cover related to um, uh, deed restricted affordable housing at this point, or you want to move on from that? No, I, you know I think it was just really to sort of tie it up. Is that that is is it's a tool and we should use it, but I think we've leaned on it too heavily, almost out of a reluctance to pursue other ways of creating affordability in our yeah. community. Yeah. And and again, if we're going to be proactive we need to do so with as many tools in our tool chest and deed restriction seems like it's the last resort of reactionary housing policy because when you start to think down the road five or ten years you don't have to lean on deed restriction to achieve affordability if you're really starting to plan ahead and and think about 15 minute neighborhoods and inclusion in a long-term solution and and i think that's why we can look at rezoning and community land trusts and where we actually deal with the cash and loo and true inclusionary housing. I, I think a more balanced approach actually might might get us a little closer to our goals than, than we're currently headed. Well, I, I guess one thing I think about is, is, you know, if you just think about the supply demand curve, you know, maybe we should just try a, a lot more supply. You know, that, that would be one way to, uh, to try to relax housing prices. Um, I do have, you know, maybe I shouldn't be brainstorming quite on the, on the <laughs> spot here, but, but it occurs to me that um, 
Do we actually know what happens with deed restricted affordable housing as you get decades out? Because it seems like if if housing, you know, the market rate housing continues to sort of accelerate in, in its uh, uh, expense and that diverges from the, the fixed, you know, the fixed um, appreciation of the deed restricted housing. At some point, I wonder if that that uh, distance, but the gap getting large, it doesn't have some kind of unintended consequences that um, we just don't know about yet. That's a great. I, I think that's. I don't know enough about yeah. that to speak um, intelligently on that. Um, I think it's a good question, and I think you know maybe there's ways to calibrate deed restriction over a long period of time where you can allow people to move up the socioeconomic ladder as a function of how long they're in deed restriction and provide off-ramps for the city to recalibrate the price of that property back in, in, in alignment with whatever the current affordability marker is based on area median income. So I, again, sort of spitballing yeah and, it doesn't and I, seem like the most pressing issue it, it doesn't on, on the plate, it but, doesn't but yeah. but i you know so we're I'm just brainstorming but i do again but this is the like can we get creative and maybe that idea is just dead on arrival because it's just maybe there's something that prohibits that and yeah. who knows yeah. but but i think large, largely you know what it gets to is we should not be afraid to try new things I think we've we've gotten ourselves into a, a mode in the city where we let perfection be the enemy of the good. Yeah. And a perfect example is Alpine Balsam. It just wasn't perfect for people, and therefore it it couldn't happen at all. But it, and, was, you know, but it was perfect. Didn't you see the plans? They were so beautiful. I mean, it was just the, you know, the like gray the, box, right? Yeah, not exactly. that they looked amazing, but yeah. you know, what do I know? But, you know, and, I, and, and then there's the other side that we tend to think tank our way to solutions rather than just trying. Yeah. And I think that's so antithetical to so many folks in this community. An organic city that has lots of interests and lot, you know, like yeah. you said, you don't have to have one one size fits all solution. Let's try lots of different things yeah. and see what works. Well, and I'd say, you know, as the saying goes, you can throw a rock in this town and hit a PhD. Yeah. Well, you can also throw a rock in this town and probably hit some exceptionally successful business people in this town. Yeah. Whether you're a research scientist or or you're successful in business your success is built on failure. Yeah. So I would argue that for our community, we should measure our success on some of those failures too and not be afraid to take chances and try new things. And yet we kind of just hold ourselves hostage because we have to find the one solution that has zero chance of failure and we just aren't taking risk. Yeah. And and I, I just don't see that as being emblematic of what so many folks in this community have used to become successful and we can't well, apply that to our uh, our community values. I think one kind of humorous way to push back on that is um, a lot of the things we're trying to get done aren't really that risky. Right? <laughs> because, because, I mean, if you think about like, you know, some of these projects, um, I, I went on a tour of um, what was then called Attention Homes. I think huh? they've renamed, rebranded to uh, Together. Mm-hmm. Um, that property, he was, he the, the, the the CEO of that organization was explaining how the neighbors were so concerned and there was there was a lot of pushback from the community. And I just wonder if those neighbors are so upset right now about having that facility in their neighborhood. Like, I doubt it. I bet they're just, they're, they're like, whatever, you know, like, and, and, and this is, this is, I think, 
history just repeated itself over and over again. Once the development goes in, people see it's like, you know, future dystopia, it's actually not so bad. In fact, we, we like people in uh, a thriving uh, neighborhood. So, you know, actually this is an improvement. Um, so, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, in hindsight, it doesn't seem that risky at all. Sure. <laughs> and, but in the moment, to folks in those neighborhoods, I, I, I empathize with their concern. I, I, yeah. I think it can sometimes get blown out of proportion and we make decisions perhaps focusing on the voices, the, some, the loud voices of a few rather than perhaps the greater community good. And, and I think that's where the risk aversion comes from. Um, so yeah, some of these in hindsight or even in the moment don't seem that risky. They seem like almost the obvious thing to do. But the, the forces that are, are limiting our capacity to embark on those journeys are, are, I think, because of that general risk aversion, is they just don't want to take the chance. Yeah. And, and I think we have, and, and, and if we can't, if, now is the time to start taking those chances. And, and this is maybe where we get to thread perhaps some of the conversation of the budget in, into this, because you know, the city just received about $10 million from the American Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, and they're about to get roughly another $10 million in about six months. And this money is specifically geared for underserved and underrepresented communities that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. Well, that's effectively most or all of our, of, of the individuals and groups in our community that need affordable housing and or part of our hospitality um, service industry that got absolutely devastated by COVID. So, and, and or minority communities or our unhoused and homeless, they all fit the bill of, of this money going to serve their needs. And almost all of their needs are housing needs. And so I think it's really important that this is a chance for us to really take, not risk for being risky, but to really push the envelope because we are getting money that means we don't have to take money from something else to achieve an outcome. Yeah. That's always the debate in our current budget process. Well, you want to do more of this? Well, what are you going to take money from? Oh, but I still like that too. And then we end up not being really that visionary because everybody likes the current services that we currently have. But with 10 to $20 million about to come in, this is the perfect opportunity not to just do more of the same of what we've been doing, but to really try to think of new solutions and be creative and try new things that we otherwise would absolutely not touch because of how it would cut other parts of our budget. And so I, I really hope that we can see that opportunity in front of us. And, and the other big opportunity that's gonna come for our budget is gonna be talking about the library district and how that frees up 10 to $14 million in our city's budget to again, go to other things that we're, we want to achieve. And you know, as a whole, you talk about 10, now 20, $30 million, I mean, this that's, that, that's, that's starting to be like 8% of the budget or something like that. That's almost the, the entire annual budget of our police force. That we get to then kind of just be thoughtful and perhaps progressive with how we invest in our values and how we think about going forward. So I think we're at a very important and I think opportunistic time with regards to how we're coming out of COVID. There's a massive community self-reflection of what are our values. And we now have these opportunities through the library district and through the ARPA money to really think about where, how do we want to reinvest and recalibrate our priorities, be it for housing and transportation and how we serve our unhoused, or maybe how we take care of some of the backlog with regards to our deferred maintenance on open space. And, you know, I think there's a lot of those interesting things that 
we've only been nibbling at the edges for because we're we're trimming little money here, little money there. But boom, this injection of money is, uh, I think, a huge opportunity for us in our community. So it seems like another opportunity for uh, increased revenues is closely related to increasing the amount of housing we have. Up. You know, like I think we spent fifty million dollars on the Balsam Alpine. So I mean, that was that a loan? Are we going to get that money back, or like? <laughs> I, I guess maybe that's not. That, that, I guess that wasn't money. That, that must be. Lo- sorry, that must have been loaned. I don't know the answer to that. I, I do know that not all of that is a sunk fixed cost because yeah. so much of the evaluation, analysis, and and zoning conversations and all of that work on surveying the land and knowing all that, that doing the the transportation, the trip routes, all of that analysis will be absolutely valuable in whatever the next iteration is. So. Yeah. I think some of that cost will roll over to whatever this next version oh, of Alpine sure. Balsam is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, maybe, but I don't think it's all like, hey, we just sort of threw money in a, in a fireplace. Oh, no, it. I didn't mean that. I just meant like as you develop that and then you sell it, that, that money goes somewhere. Oh, true, and if, true. If, if the city, yeah, if the city um, paid $50 million for that, I assume they'll get that back yeah. plus, plus some, yeah. not to mention increased uh, property tax and I mean, it seems like if you increase housing throughout the city, you're going to have uh, higher property tax revenues, um, yeah. which seems like an obvious, like, if you're, you know, if you're short on money because you're spread too thin, maybe it's because you're literally spread too thin, <laughs> yeah. like in terms of single family homes. Uh, it's not a very efficient um, uh, footprint for, you know, city infrastructure like sewage systems and totally. electricity. And, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, and, you know, property tax, you know, to be clear, doesn't really provide a lot of money for the city. Okay. And and so I, you know, it, it it's there, uh, but a lot of that is state and county. I mean, so we, we get a small pie, and so we do get an increasing percentage of that. So most of ours is sales tax. But a lot of it is yeah. that sales and okay. use tax in terms of where we can really prime the pump, to use that analogy, for really boosting our economic vitality, but more importantly, really boosting revenues. And and See, that I was is, testing yeah. you. I was testing oh. you to make sure you, you understood your, <laughs> your city, municipality, uh, uh, government model. And, you know, and, and that brings back to another, you know, again, this sort of reactive versus proactive governance. We saw in the fall of last year that, you know, vaccines were coming out and we were going to start to have an opportunity to start to open our businesses back up. Yeah. And, and, and perhaps in time for the summer crush, summer rush. And the three departments that took the biggest hits from the budget cuts were libraries, parks and rec, and our planning department. And, you know, libraries, you know, there's reasons, you know, the the in-person, the the indoors, yeah, there's some issues. Obviously, you're closing those those places down, so that made sense in the moment. I I think, you know, it's probably time to bring it back. But, but, But aside from the justifications, we saw that we were starting to come back online and we had an opportunity to see, oh, you know, the city's revenues are down 8% because of sales tax loss, because people just aren't out spending money in the community, especially downtown or on the hill or other places. So how can we, when we do decide to open the community up for business and go in person, how can we be ready to maximize the revenue generation, the moments we can open? Instead of starting from a dead stop, how do we start the, you know, start that with a running start and what we missed the opportunity to do was to invest in that moment to use our reserves which we've been overly fiscally conservative about i would argue if we didn't if not for a pandemic 
what are the reserves for? <laughs> I, I mean, and we barely touched them. Like we were waiting for some worse pandemic or worse apocalypse. Yeah. And so to me, it was a missed opportunity, again, not being proactive. And this is a chance where we could have invested in our planning staff, inspectors and those moving through things, especially, you know, plans and remodels and new businesses that were trying to come in. We had some businesses waiting six, eight, in some cases, 10 weeks for what was a basic inspection. And they missed many weeks of the early summer rush to generate the very sales and use tax revenues that we need to reopen our libraries, to hire back our park staff, or more importantly, generate the revenues to reinvest in some of these other community services. And now we're sort of kind of behind the eight ball because some of these businesses lost a month of that revenue generation. And, and that's that, again, we were reacting, not thinking proactively on how we could be ready for what we knew was coming. And we sat on our hands, uh, unfortunately. And, and now we've almost, it's almost too late to make that investment because by the time you hire the staff and get them trained, you know, it's going to be October. And we'll have missed that yeah. summer rush. So, um, you know, are, you talk, yeah. are you talking right now in this scenario, this is 2020 or uh, this year? Uh, in terms of the, the missing the some of those opportunities missing the opportunities for because we still have businesses that are in the long pipeline the, the, the no, long I know, pipeline. but which which year are you talking about this was last year it was last fall that we started to see this happening okay. and realizing that in summer of 2021 we were going to start to open up for business uh -huh. and were we best prepared to have our businesses and our staff and all of that ready to go so that I when see. we open for business, we could capitalize. So we've been kind of lagging this summer. Abs yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've talked to a number of business owners who were like, yeah, I, I've waited six weeks and I missed all of May Ouch. for what was a basic, you know, alarm inspection. Ouch. And yeah. it's just because they're short staffed and we just haven't hired them back. And yeah. we, again, we could have used easily could have used a million dollars to hire that staff, get them back in and would have made that million bucks back by July. Right. You know, so it, it, that's the immediate return on investment. That's that sort of some say fiscal responsibility. I would say what's fiscally responsible is actually knowing yeah. how to properly use your money when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you've held reserves for yeah. these crises and we're in one and we go, oh, well, we're, we're saving it for what? Yeah, um, that, that's the <laughs> you know, the, the, those are those again. We're not investing in our values. And I, I keep coming back to that because it seems like no matter what the issue is, we have these stated values and yet our actions just aren't commensurate with that. Yeah, so I just, you know, um, just a plug for uh, the Boulder Valley Comprehensive Plan. If you don't know what those values are, they're just like, they, they look pretty good, you yeah, know? And, yeah. and um, it'd, be, it'd be really cool if we just really like went all in on, on uh, realizing those. So um, let's see, did, did you finish uh, doing policies that you're interested in? Cause like, I just, I just sort of wanted you to say occupancy restriction, you know, like bedrooms oh, are for oh, people. Oh, well, I mean, we can certainly talk about uh, bedrooms are for people. I, I support bedrooms are for people. I, I, I was fortunate enough when we were doing the Our Mayor, Our Choice campaign to be working alongside bedrooms mm -hmm. in gathering signatures. We each had each other's petitions and we were in front of King Supers and McGuckins and you name it, collecting yeah. signatures cool. in the middle of a pandemic, mind yeah. you. And, and, you know, I came into it with actually some, some bias when I first, you know, had talked to Eric and Chelsea about bedrooms early on and my, and my bias led me to think, oh, you know, this is really maybe geared for just college students or, or recent graduates. And I was quickly proved wrong by that. And when I was out collecting signatures and people came up so enthusiastic about signing the bedrooms petition, yeah. but yeah. more importantly, it wasn't just, they were enthusiastic. <laughs> 
I saw the diversity of people and their different stages of life. There were people in their 50s that were saying, this makes a big difference for me. There were people who were young professionals, people who were retired. There were young students. There were people who were working in our tech community. There were hospitality workers. I mean, it's it, it seemed like it was going to impact almost everybody in this community in a positive way. And it really opened my eyes up to, you know what, this actually, ha I think this is really onto something in terms of how we can improve um, not just affordability, but create more access and inclusivity. Now, I will say that there are par there are areas in our community that have reason for some concern with regards to what might be unintended consequences of bedrooms. I think of, you know, a lot of the folks on the hill. And I think of that area is already probably maximizing almost all of its bedrooms on the hill as it is. I'd say it's other areas that have the empty bedrooms, places in South Boulder, maybe a little bit of East, and certainly maybe North. But on the hill, they're effectively utilizing all the bedrooms already. So and it has so, very little impact. Is that what you're saying? I would say that my worry is that the impact will be on, and I hope it's not the case, but a concern that's expressed that I have to say I'm curious about, I would yeah. like to know if it yeah. will happen, is whether or not property owners around there may decide to sell or turn their property, what would have been for a young working family or, or, or uh, some, some family unit, and they go to rental, and then we lose that opportunity for people to buy into our community instead of them sort of just being rented. And so I, 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 I don't know, but it's a concern. It's a real one that those neighbors have, and I want to be yeah, sensitive I guess I to would, that. I would push back on that in the following way, that those single-family homes that uh, on the hill are never going to be affordable again. You know, they're just not, that's just, there's just no economic model that allows that to happen except for a collapse in demand, which would be catastrophic for other and, and that may be true too i mean <laughs> the other part that i think is maybe worth looking at is whether or not current property owners would sort of just chop their 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 you know their that home up into like 12 bedrooms yeah and i and i think if you, you know if you have a house that would actually be big enough to make them yeah and then do we the have egress and yeah all, right all and, and yeah. so again sure. not sure these are things that are, will happen yeah. But I do think it's important that when a policy like this becomes citywide, yeah. that I think it's responsible for someone, you know, an elected member on council to think of, well, you know, what, what are these issues and, and can we provide some guardrails so that people aren't abusing a, a policy that is intended for just these sort of positive community benefits. So yeah. I just think it's worth us having that conversation and looking at it. I, I, again, I support bedrooms and, you know, the work they're doing and, especially coming off on how they got absolutely shafted by the city attorney's office last and council year, yeah. last year. I, I think they absolutely deserve this bite at the apple and I think are going to be very successful and yeah. a, a lot of credit to the campaign team that they could have gone so negative and dark off what happened to them last year, but they actually just evolved their petition, made it stronger and came at it again. And I yeah. think they're better out So it. I was involved this year. Oh, good. Uh, and Fantastic. so I, I helped with uh, gathering petitions and signatures and um i i had the same reaction as you is um man this thing has really wide appeal like you get you get different reasons from lots of different people yeah. for for why they, it's important to them so yeah i i just uh, i'm i'm excited i i really hope that it, it passes yeah yeah i do yeah. um and, and uh, how yeah. do you feel about uh adus i think they're a they're a wonderful tool to provide not just affordability but uh, also for 
in some cases, in income for people who want fixed incomes as their property values increase. I, I see that in um, my area of South Boulder. Um, you know, single family homes, there's a few of them that have ADUs, but a lot of the people that have lived there are on fixed income. And they've been there 30, 40, 50 years. And, you know, home values have, have tripled in, you know, in 15 years. And that's that's a stretch now on fixed income. And so to be able to do an ADU when you still want to live in place, yep. uh, I think is a very valuable tool in some of those areas um, like where I'm at. And to be honest, I, I live four, three or four houses down from an ADU. And it didn't, it didn't ruin your world. <laughs> it's like it doesn't even exist. So uh, you're uh, open to liberalizing the rules around it? Or do you uh, feel like they're, they're, they're fine the way they are? No, I, I think we should definitely look at where we can increase their usage. Again, I think the reason why it was capped where it was was to appease a lot of the fear that it was going to destroy neighborhood character yeah. and, and create trash on the street and too many cars and loud parties. I, I haven't noticed those disruptions. Yeah. And, and maybe there's areas where, where it is. I, I haven't heard. I haven't seen it. I, I would not be, again. But we have enough you know, data now to so. like revisit it and say, hey, you know, here's the 80s that went in since the last time yeah, we refreshed we can, this policy. You know, let's, let's, let's increase it by 30%. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, and, and again, not to say that that's too small or too big, but I'm saying there's no reason why we can't just keep increasing and just, and then maybe we heat, reach this critical mass of ADUs where. Maybe that, there aren't. A, that's enough now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. maybe. I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. But I but to just be like, that's enough, I don't think is also the right answer. Yeah. So so I, I would support exploring some expansion of that. Because it's, again, I can only speak for my neighborhood. It's not hurting my neighborhood. Yeah. And and I know the property owner who has it. And, and they're delightful. And I, it's awesome. Like, so great. Uh, do you mind if we pivot towards transportation? Yeah, yeah. Maybe um, give, us a, give us a vision for what you see as... You'd like to see happen in Boulder for transportation? What, what's what's working well? What's uh, what are our biggest challenges? Well, like we mentioned with the Boulder Valley Comp Plan, there's fantastic values and vision in the transportation master plan. It's a great document. It would, if we can only get to a place where we empower our staff to meet the ambition of those ideals that are in the master plan. I, 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 so step, you know, step us through I think one we're, of, in, a, one we're in a great spot. I mean, one of the big pieces is, you know, we keep talking about multimodal, and but we're in this sort of transitional state of how do we get to multimodal. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that jumps out to me is, is we sort of mentioned it before, is getting rid of parking minimums. Yeah. I, I think this is a huge start because... Some of this is future planning where we're not quite ready to enact the policies, although we have set the marker where we want to be. But that's where we can meet the challenges of now to set us up for the future. And that's where through housing, we can say, oh, we're going to get rid of parking minimums. And that increases our likelihood of truly creating multimodal communities with how we set that up by, by building in the reduction of our reliance on vehicles. And, and I think that's where we can sort of tether the the now and the future together in a meaningful way um you know i think one of the other parts has to do with how we're dealing you know underpasses and increasing our bike lanes one of the things i saw certainly in in my network of friends who are you know have young young kids one of the things as certainly as a lot of the parents were home working was many of them got um 
like rad wagons or other bicycles to, to, to take their young kids everywhere because it's like, well, now I'm home working. I don't need to drive a car and yep. let's just, yep. let's go hop on our bike and go places and we're not going inside. So, and I, and so it's been great to see a, a, a massive growth of the biking community in our, in, in Boulder, but it's also come at some cost, which has been a lot of the, a lot of the people I know, I say a lot, I mean a number of them, I'm not going to say more than the majority, but a number of them have, are, are concerned about bike safety because they don't quite have a mastery yet or, or just aren't comfortable riding on streets with cars buzzing by. And I think there's maybe a need to think of how we decouple cars and bikes in, in a way that provides that safety blanket for people that maybe aren't daily or, or super tacticians of, of riding bikes through our community. And they want to do it, but there's an apprehension because yeah. they're like, ah, there's a few of these transitions from one spot to another where I gotta be on a street for two blocks and now that's going to, I'm not, I'm not making that leap to then be on the bike to make it all the way to North, North Boulder. And I go, ah, we should not, we've got barriers to entry for people to get on bikes and that I don't like the sound of that. Yeah. And I think yeah. COVID maybe accelerated maybe some of that inevitability, um, or, or increased the dependency on the current biking system we have. Um, uh, but it really, uh, illuminated for me the need to really start to be clear with where are these bike lanes how do we decouple start thinking about more of these underpasses i use them all the time when i'm biking um and i, and I like being able to navigate without having to get in with cars yeah, um yeah, so so sure. those are a few of the things that i i think are one more uh, pressing because of covid and, and a community urgency to want to be on bikes and i think we should foster it before they regress back to being in cars because they realized that the bikes were maybe not a hundred, that our community was not a hundred percent ready on infrastructure for them to enter that biking community. Yeah, yeah. I would just, I would really hate for a regression there when we're, when we're really close to making that really full transition, you know? Yeah. I, I appreciate all of that. I'm, I'm really a passionate uh, cyclist myself in terms of using it to get places. And um, one of the things that, uh, sort of drives me crazy is um, we have so many residential streets that are 40 feet wide with parking on both sides and 20 you know two-way traffic and it seems like there's a lot of places where um, you could change it you could just reconfigure all that asphalt take some of it out maybe put a bike lane have parking in a one-way you know just let's let's be creative because these 40 these 40 foot wide streets are these big heat sinks and mm -hmm. they're not attractive and they encourage fast driving. And yeah. um, anyways, I uh, I would love to, um, you know, to your point about parking minimums, um, I would love to not grandfather them in, you know, so that people that have lots of parking nearby them could, could raise concern and be like, hey, there's a lot of other things we could do with this space. Yeah, yeah, I would agree so. I mean, the, the one that jumps out to me is that Wells Fargo lot over on Walnut and Broadway. Oh yeah, right. Oh, I mean, it's I, like I, I used to work across from okay. that, and I used to stare at that. I was like, "That must be worth so much money." It's if worst could... possible use of land, and the lot's like maybe at best a quarter full. Never, never full. Right, yeah. right. So I'm like, "Oh God, what an inefficient use of space and land, and terrible for our stormwater infrastructure." Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just it's 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 negative on a lot of aspects. Got so, that. you know, there I think there's a lot of those pieces there, and and you know, you you bring up a good point. You know, one spot that that comes to mind. That I remember in the con it was in the conversation about Chautauqua and the park it parking permitting system, uh -huh. and um, that was the one lonely mosquito. Yeah, the mosquitoes. They're, just, they're just starting up. to they're starting to show um, up a little bit. And 
and I'm used to having my wife around. She's the great attractor for mosquitoes, so usually I don't have to worry. But when I'm solo, I'm like, yeah. what are these bugs getting yeah, on they, me? They don't like me too much uh, at all. My, so my wife attracts me. them for my and children's benefit. Um, so, you know, I, that conversation on the hill, on 9th and some of those other streets, is one of the things that I found interesting about zoning is they're not allowed to have driveways in many of those homes. Oh, interesting. And uh, so you kind of go, so they're forced to be on the street. But if you allowed them to be in their driveway, you could then create a bike path on the street given the size of those streets. Yeah. So there's those little things. I'm like, oh, why, why couldn't you just let them have a driveway? Yeah, uh, interesting. And, and so th that was something that, that came about because they were complaining of like, well, as residents, we have to park on the street. And someone's like, well, why don't you park in the driveway? And they're like, we're not allowed to have driveways. And I think it was kind of that like, wait, 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 what do you mean? So um, very interesting, you know, and, but these are those little little pieces I think you can sort of work through. But I, I, I agree with you on how we think of, and yeah. not every street needs to be massive to accommodate everybody. Um, and I think we can start to think about, well, where are our main thoroughfares? And do we want to think about certain areas that are perhaps one ways that we can then leverage the space there for really safe biking but still allow some car commuting to move through those neighborhoods to allow that access. And so, you know, I'd, I'd defer to a tr transportation experts on, on if and where that's viable, but two-way traffic on every street to me, I don't know if that's necessarily in our long-term best interests if we're trying to also create a semi-decoupled environment for, for safe, you know, non-car traffic and movement of people. Yeah, I... I um... You know, I really appreciate the bike infrastructure that's here, but um, you know, when I when I think about what the city could be with respect to cycling, um, we're still like we. I, I think of myself as a as a cyclist because yeah. I don't have a car. I um, well, I have access to it. my wife has a car. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's let's be. You know, I, I do drive, but um, but I get most places on bike, and um, I. I feel like I'm a second-class citizen as a as a cyclist. I mean, it's not it's not safe every you know. And there's um, the, the, the city's just handed over to cars. I mean, it's designed around yeah. cars. We're in a neighborhood right now that I've I've observed that is walkable by proximity because mm -hmm. we're close to a few things. There's a, there's a safe way over here. Right. But it's not walkable by design by any stretch. It's, this is this is like. You know, this the street right out here that no no one even drives on is 40 feet wide, you know, and it's like we should just have some imagination around um, how to reconfigure things. But, I agree. Yeah. And and be willing to try new things in yep. different areas. And that, that comes back to that risk aversion. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I'm, I'm strongly advocating for, which is just getting rid of the of, of areas that need to have parking or need to have cars. Oh, yeah. Like the closure of West Pearl. Like, let's keep that closed. My, my statement is close it to cars, open it up for business. Like, if, 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 you've, if you've walked that in the last six months, or hell, when they, when they started it, you know, started the temporary closure, to me, I walked through it, I'm like, this is the way it's always should have been. And yeah. it's amazing to yeah. see the spill out and the people eating outside and the vibrancy. It's like, I just, I, I do it with the apprehension of it's fleeting because I'm worried that this is temporary. Yeah. Versus like, this is permanent. There is something to attack attached to um, and I'd argue the same thing on like 13th street between Pennsylvania and college on the hill like create this sort of walkable strip and con and conduit 
where yeah. we can reduce some of our dependency on cars. We were because we were talking about uh, parking minimums and you know like uh, uh, West Pearl being extended and how yeah. nice that was and. Um, one of the things I would love to see is um, a pilot project come together where uh, we have uh, far less parking um, uh, than, you know, so, so something like the, that senior center on um, Arapahoe that, the, and, and uh, 33rd at the, at the Freud House yeah. uh, camp um, store, um, you know, they're, they're, the, the amount of parking they're going to have there is is very restrictive yeah. as i as i understood it when it got approved i think you're right that's um, my impression and i think i think there's opportunities for that sort of thing in a lot of places around boulder um with the, a property that just kind of comes to mind for me and i don't know the history or who owns it or what's possible there but you know at baseline and broadway mm -hmm. base mar and then going back behind it it seems like that would be such a perfect place. It's close to the campus. It's close to uh, bus routes to have um, a new kind of housing development go in where it's like literally there's there's just no cars there or just, you know, just enough for the for the, the car share that you would need that so people can reasonably have access to cars when they need them. But, you know, just in terms of daily life, we don't, we're not just getting, you know, those residents wouldn't just be getting in their cars to go to their places you know so uh, yeah i mean I, I i agree i think that is in line with that sort of theme we've sort of been talking about is there's a, there's there are a well established known group of of, of locations like base mar and diagonal plaza and others that you go it, these are the perfect places for that kind of gentle infill yeah. where it's mixed use it's it's mixed affordability and you don't need cars because everything you could need is within 15 minutes. Yep. And it's like, and so to that sort of multimodal vision in the TMP and walkable neighborhoods, we have to start walking the walk, no pun intended. No, it's not and, even and, a and, pun, it's and, just literal. And like. so before we start thinking about larger community investment in multimodal and, and changing of zoning, to me, I think the real litmus test is we got to be able to do it in the places that are the most obvious. Yeah. And and to me, that's the true test, and that's where we should really focus our efforts because I think that's the proving ground for how we then up or downscale those models and processes for other parts of the city that, by definition, are going to be smaller in in their footprint because we just don't have that many large piece parcels like Base Bar and Diagonal Plaza and a, and a handful of these others and, and Alpine Balsam, right? To, to really do things and go and, and go in a in, in a solid direction in that sense. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's just important for us to really be like, not nah, let's identify those areas and be like, here, here, and we're gonna really get after that. We'll really work with the developer and say, we have a community need. There's community benefits to this. It meets all of our goals: transportation, housing, or climate goals. Right? I mean, if it's checking off all the boxes, there's no reason to be hesitant in the pursuit of those outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I think about the climate crisis, I mean, the, what seems like a basic truth that just everyone's just like, oh, la, 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 is that um, we're going to have to get out of our cars if we're going to, like, really curb our carbon footprints. And, um, or move electric. I mean, I, I well, think there's something to be said that, that that can be part of the transition of that. Okay, yeah. I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't have any hope that electric cars are... I actually kind of feel like the opposite about electric cars and that they um 
they kind of they kind of give us the illusion that we can just keep doing everything we're doing only greener and i would just love to see us just stop driving everywhere yeah. um it's it's not um it's not it's not necessary uh in, in so many situations but um uh yeah uh, <laughs> electric cars are cool i think electric bicycles are way cooler uh, i agree I, in we, terms we, of, we have two and yeah. we, we swear by them yeah yeah it, it really especially um, living up the hill I it hate really coming home sweaty. it really changes the equation in terms of where you can get to and how you can get your business done and yeah. um yeah so. and i just say just moving my children right i mean yeah i i i think of like trying to pedal up that hill with two <laughs> kids dragged behind me yeah i'm like i i the, I used the, to live up on uh, Shanahan. Oh, okay. Ridge. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I mean, know, there's I a lazy side of me that's like, the last thing I want to do is go to Southern Sun with my family, have a beer or two, and then think of dragging that family up the hill. <laughs> I know, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Right, so it's like, but I got an e-bike that I can put the two kids on the back of. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can kind of yeah, lean on the throttle a little bit and not, you know. That's pretty cool. So you know, they're they're. But what that does is it means now I'm on my bike rather than driving a quarter of a mile to a restaurant. So yep. um, I, I think those are those incremental but important uh, 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 changes to one's radius that well, they think of how they can be different in their habits. Yeah, well, and especially um, another way I think about this issue it has to do with, you know, my first reaction to bedrooms are for people was like, this sounds pretty good. I guess my one concern is the cars. What do you do about the cars of, of uh, people living in fully occupied houses? And um, I guess I guess the theme that needs to come out is as we increase the number of people, we decrease the number of yeah, cars, yeah. and um, that those just have to go in opposite directions. And I agree. Um, people people generally speaking like other people. I mean, we 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 uh, we are a we, we're, yeah we're a social <laughs> species. We don't like other people's cars, and for lots of good reasons. And so <laughs> yeah. if we can. Um, I think one way to make density and infill and rezoning and all these things that we've talked about more attractive to the people who really want to resist that is uh, sell a vision of a future where there's just a whole lot less cars. Yeah. And I think I think pe people can see that that is uh, a better future. Yeah. I, I agree with you, and I, I think that's an important concern for the next council to consider. Assuming bedrooms passes are. You know, like you know, as I said, there's going to be some maybe unintended consequences of yeah. bedrooms. By no means should any of those be a reason to scuttle the large community good that comes from it. But I do think that council should look at some some tweaking ordinances that help again put some guardrails on. And I think the car thing's interesting, right? I mean, if it's a three bedroom house and you're three plus one, and there's four cars in a three bedroom, okay, I don't I I, I don't know if that's too much of an issue. But six cars at a five-bedroom house, that might be a bit too much and have too much collateral impact on neighbors in that particular neighborhood yeah. where we might need to think of an ordinance that says, you know, no more than four cars, period, whether you're a four-bedroom or a five-bedroom, like we just cap the number of cars at a residence that is is um, you know occupied through through you know the bedrooms are for people so I, again i don't know how to structure it but i think we, we can find ways to curb some of those unnecessary impacts that work against our other values like reducing cars yeah. and, and vehicle miles traveled does does tabor allow us to make it expensive to park cars throughout the city or do we have to is that a new tax or i mean do we have tools at our disposal now to just uh, make parking expensive uh well we 
Tabor doesn't have anything to do with the parking authority in terms of setting up like special parking zones or permits. That, or what, or, or that's what? not considered a tax. It's okay. considered a fee. I see. Okay. Um, and so you can kind of skirt Tabor, as best as I know, through fees. That changing the, I mean, I think council's already discussing whether to change the parking rate. Okay. Uh, it's, that's yeah. not a Tabor conversation. Okay. It has Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, thankfully, because it, it provides some at least flexibility without having to go to the voters of, do you want your parking to go up 25 cents? Uh, <laughs> almost totally everyone's going to say no and yeah, will right. not raise revenue, right? right. So, or, or create the disincentive to drive your car, uh, which, which is, I, I think, another perhaps benefit of increasing rates. It's kind of like a gas tax, right? It is, yeah. It's a way to throttle those pieces or a tobacco tax, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's a way to social engineering more or less is, is one yeah. of those pieces to curb habits but um yeah i i, I don't uh, i don't know how you could do th i i think i don't know what types of, of mechanisms you could use other than making an ordinance of saying that there can be no more than a maximum number of cars that's one way to do it um, you could also just create parking districts now one of the things that they do like on chautauqua and they may, uh, they're actually talking about maybe doing around Tantra Lake um, it, it, when CU South eventually gets developed is worrying about uh, spillover parking onto the neighborhood streets. Yep. And so what the city does have authority on, and they've done this in a few areas, I think near Sanitas and Mapleton, is they'll give the residents there a certain set number of parking passes, which means they can park there at any time, but anybody who doesn't have a pass is only limited to park there for two hours before getting a ticket and so there's a way to say that of like okay in this particular neighborhood zone or whatever um you're limited to each home's only got three parking passes yeah. and you want to play musical cars every two hours to park there you do so at your own risk yeah. um and, and well, that's a way um, to do that you know i i don't know how popular this suggestion is but i just keep coming back to the fact that we have way too much parking <laughs> so think, let's yeah, let's right. remove some of it uh, even on the residential streets but uh, but i don't know if I don't know if that's on anyone else's and, radar, you know, and, and what, what I'd I, love to see. I, and I think that's a, a reasonable goal to have. I, I think that's a great long-term goal. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but it means we need to start taking those incremental steps so that all of a sudden we go, oh, look, we, you know, we just reduced our, our parking by 50%, and we just did so on yeah. that steady march versus thinking we've got to make these massive leaps all at once. It's those big changes that freak people out. And so yeah. much like we talked about how to, you know, put ADUs into play without overwhelming the community. All right, now we can do more and then more. And so I think that, I, yes, we have urgency, but politically and being able to get the community on board, that incremental approach is the one that seems to work in a lot of instances, it seems. Cool. Um, anything else about transportation you want to cover? Um, I, I would support a citywide eco-pass. Oh, nice. I, I, I think back to my time at the university I use the bus so much more than I do now, um, and it's because I, you know, part of it is one I, I, I don't really carry cash on me, and it's not a really easy way to try to credit card, and, yeah. and it's just cumbersome. Yeah. And so, the the cumbersome nature of having to pay in the moment for a bus, yeah, I've, okay, I can get around it, but it is yeah, a barrier have, to entry. They do have the prepaid card, and prepaid I've, card. I've, used, I've used that. Um, um, that's that's convenient, but and I can't tell you like forgetting the prepaid card or forget to do it. So, yeah. I mean, there's just sort of a general life administration that I'm sure could adapt. But more importantly, you just had a city eco pass. Yeah. That just yeah. limited, that just, just alleviated those barriers of entry. I think we'd have a, a, some, some greater usage. I know I and my family would use the bus a lot more um, when we're perhaps 
not in a position to be riding our bikes or it's winter and we're not wanting to, we don't want to ride our, drive our cars. I, I, I want to do that. And I, I don't want as many barriers of entry to do though. And, you know, I live just enough on a hill that we, we can walk to the bus stop just fine. We're walking back home. So, so we're right on the, we're right on the fringe of, of where that is convenient. I, I, I think we'll still do it. But again, it's those barriers to entry, and I'm sure we're not the only ones that have some level of barriers to entry just because of our current busing infrastructure. Uh, but I think that would be a, a helpful way um, to get us where we need to go. Cool. Cool. Um, any other subjects you want to bring up before we close? Yeah, I think the one that I, I, that really resonates for me and in many ways is is a is this sort of thread that ties through all the issues that we've discussed. And I think we kind of touched a little bit on them, but is really, uh, it's, it's effective governance. And what type of, you know, evolution and reforms can we do to our governmental process that allows us to actually have better outcomes and to be better equipped to deal with the issues that we face. And, you know, the Arm Air Our Choice campaign, I think was a great first step we've empowered the voters to have direct accountability to the mayor, which we've ne- which we've not had in a century. And we're using a much better election system that empowers more voters and um, limits uh, the spoiler effect and creates uh, a lot more moderation in the candidates that are provided. And, and I think it will have much greater results um, when we actually get to that election. And building on that would be, would be a couple of things. One would be we need to provide fair pay for council. Yeah. Yeah, I figured you were going to say that. It, it, and this is in many ways like, and it doesn't have to. If if there's any whiff of of, of conflict of interest as a prospective candidate, uh, it doesn't need to be for me. I'll we'll sign it to say it 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 starts on the day that I'm termed out or whatever <laughs> or or other candidates. But at the end of the day, this is about equity and diversity and access, but also being consistent with our values. Our, our, our city and so many residents I talk to say that we need to have a living wage in our community. Well, the same should be true for those at the highest level of office. They should be paid a living wage. I can't tell you how many people I've run into who my time with them goes, oh my God, they would make a really good city council sure. or city council woman. <clears throat> and I would be like, yeah. but the reason they say no is because it's not economically viable for them to do so. And I go, man, why, how unfortunate that we have a barrier to entry for really qualified people to participate and help lead our community, but can't even consider it because it doesn't pay a living wage. Is, uh, is that something that you guys can get past? Um, you know, if, if there's a new uh, city council, uh, you know, um, I can't. You a know, new majority a on new, council? A new majority uh, on council. Is that something you can just take care of right away? Uh, no, that, it would no. have to be a vote to the voters. The okay. voters would have to decide that. I mean, council could put it on the ballot. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times things that council puts on the ballot, most of those actually pass. There's something that, you know, the stamp of approval. Although I do know that historically, you know, there 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 is a, a whiff of impropriety if council is saying, hey, here's a ballot measure we put on that pays us more. I, I We'll need a group in this community that that an outside an outside uh, group that doesn't have to go get signatures. I think I'd be happy to advocate on council to get a ballot measure on that passed. But I do think that it, that just the endorsement of council alone won't be enough to get it passed. Right, sure. I think you'll need a community group to actually do the outreach and do the advocacy to I really guess dispel I was just misconceptions. If you could just get it taken care of, I wish. then it's then it's ready to it's in place for the next uh, election cycle, and you know yeah. that would be cool. But. I, 
I mean, I wish for the sake of expedience, but I also think it's important for the sake of the proper checks and balances yeah, in our government totally. that the voters should ultimately get to decide any sort of compensation for, for council. Yeah. We, we shouldn't be, you know, uh, dealing for ourselves, <laughs> and, and, and that, that should never be the case yeah. for government. But we should be making a living wage. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is without question a 20-hour-a-week job, um, yeah. if not, and, de and depending on the commitment of various different counselors, uh, it's sometimes more. Yeah. Um, and and to, uh, quite honestly, we can see that. When you watch council meetings, you can see who's putting in the time and who's not. Yeah. And if you're paying them a living wage, then we as a community and as voters get to hold them to account. Yeah. Uh, versus it's more or less volunteer work. And so if someone's kind of checked out, you're kind of like, oh, they're checked out. But if you're paying them a living wage, there's more accountability yeah, yeah, to making right. sure that they, they stay true to the role that you've elected them to do. And, and so that's where I think fair pay re really can, can improve um, the quality of our governance and, and improve the people who are elected and create greater inclusion and diversity. And that would be coupled with changing our election system, as we mentioned earlier, for all of council as a whole. And, and I think that's the, the next big reform for how we think of governance, but how we also think of how we're getting stuff done. Right? There's, you know, we come back to these community surveys where we see increasing urgency on issues. Well, if we, uh, councils for years now are not addressing the issues adequately to meet the needs of the community, well, that's partly because we don't really have an elected government that is made up demographically and from a set of values like the majority of our community. Or, or, and so that disconnect means that council is perhaps not operating on the best interests of a majority of our community because our election system does not make that so. It allows for small vocal minorities to get into positions of power that are disproportionate to their population and 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 which, demographics which is in kind the community. Of a, a kind of a tidy narrative for why council drags its feet on all these ways it could be getting out of the way to let our core values uh, you know come through on a lot of these projects that get delayed you know agreed so so, so that's effective governance would be those two pieces I mean there's small little parts that I think get more technical but you know one weird thing that just doesn't make sense to me is city council is going to pass its annual budget like a month and a half before a new city council is elected oh. so new city council gets elected and then gets handed another group's budget that they're then hamstrung with for a whole year. Yeah. So that doesn't seem appropriate to the electorate because the electorate is making whatever decision they make. This is who we want to lead our community yeah. and these are the values that we support. And they can't and that council can't act on those values because the budget was just decided for them. How do you get out of that fix? You you do you, uh, do a one-time like 18-month budget something uh, like that? I mean maybe Maybe, although that really messes up staff, I, that may create some unintended consequences. What I don't, what I, and, and, and I might be, I might be missing something structural or in our charter or, or state law, but I don't know why we couldn't just slide the budget three months after election. Yeah. Like, I don't know why we're tied to that as our fiscal year. Like, I get why, like, the school district is tied to its fiscal year because it has to do with the school year. <laughs> and so I, I get that right. depending on the work you do, your fiscal year is based on the work you do. Yeah. But I don't really know what, what dictates our fiscal year and budget having to be in that particular lineup. And then it is, is oddly decoupled to when we do our um, annual retreat. So we decide the budget, and then just four months later, we do a retreat. 
Well, in the tree is where we set our strategic vision of the work we want to do. Well, I mean, in my time in business and certainly nonprofits, usually your annual retreat and your strategy informs your budget. Yeah, it just precedes it. Yeah. So I, again, these things are a little disjointed and, and I'd love to hear a reasonable explanation for process or, or, or for why that is. But right now it doesn't seem to make sense to me. And all it seems to do is slow progress and, and it almost seems like a legacy of the previous council to sort of maintain influence out of office Interesting. in a weird way. And I don't know if that's direct, I, I'm not going to say it's directly malicious, but it just seems unnecessary that you couldn't just have a new council and then a few months after they get through some of their early uh, processing and onboarding, you have your retreat and then the retreat informs your budget. Like, to me, that seems more of a logical progression of how to manage and set your vision and then decide where you're going to invest your money based on that vision and strategy. Um, so, yeah, so those are those pieces of effective governance where I look at that, I'm like, we can do better. And then as a result, the issues we tackle are going to have better outcomes because we've created a stronger process yeah. um, and a more accountable one to, to get there. Cool. Cool. Um, well, I think that's a wrap. And you want to yeah. you want to call that call yeah. that good? Yeah. Thank thank you so much for uh, joining me this evening. My pleasure. And, and uh, taking time to answer questions and tell us more about you. I think uh, hope this is a useful resource to listeners to get to know you and make you know, a decision uh, uh, this fall. I hope that you run for city council and uh, good luck to you uh, in in that effort. I know that's. That's a big challenge you're taking on, so good luck with that. I appreciate it. And, and thanks for the opportunity to, one, speak with you, but also to, to speak to those that are going to watch and listen. And, and hopefully this is a chance for, yeah, people to get to know me, but also uh, maybe reach out and ask questions. And and, okay. and I would just say for, for those that are watching, you can reach out to me at MB for Boulder on Instagram, MB for Boulder on Twitter, um, or Matt Benjamin Future First um, on Facebook, or Matt Benjamin for Council. Um, on a website and, and you can reach out to me and I want to have that dialogue with the community so don't hesitate to, to reach out and ask questions um, and give me some of your thoughts and ideas on, on how we can really take our community forward. Great, thank you. This episode of Sharing Bowler was produced by David Adamson and Philip Ogren. Sound and video editing was done by Philip Ogren. The intro music was sampled from Osladum by Gilberto Gill and is available for use under the Creative Commons Sampling Plus license. Please visit us at sharingboulder.us for show notes and previous episodes.